Oh, I love being here. My name is Eddie Bang, and I'm the pastor here at Full Life Ministry. It's such an honor to be your pastor. It's such an honor to be here with all of you and to worship Christ together. I love it that there's so many more people, and there's still more people coming through the doors. I love it. Let's all come to worship here together. You know, right before I came into this service, I, um, I was talking to the lady out there who's always here, and she's just wonderful. I don't know if you guys all know her. She's like one of the pillars of our church. And I asked her, hey, how are you? And she's like, I'm amazing. And I said, yes, you are. <laughs> she goes, I'm so joyful. I said, really? I was like, can you teach me how to do that? Because I'm not joyful all the time. She goes, I'm joyful all the time. I said, how do you do that? She goes, well, I don't know what you're talking about because I have Jesus, so I'm joyful. I was like, oh, damn, that's good. So anyway, it's good to be here. It's good to meet older people and to interact with the, the, the Korean side. And it's good to see all of you as well. Oh, I can't wait till we open up. And with that said, you know, let's get to some announcements before we get to our sermon today. Um, I was going to do something really cheesy, but should we do something cheesy? Let's do something cheesy. Let's turn to a neighbor and say, hey, I'm joyful because I have Jesus. All right. I'm very thankful that um, I'm part of a church where we actually do that, where we actually turn to people. You know, most churches would be like, oh, that's no. You know, and, but you guys actually did it. I'm so thankful. All right, you know, uh, let's get to some announcements. You know, beginning next Sunday, uh, the government has said that we are allowed to bring back everybody back to church. Yeah, yeah. As long as we observe the four square meter rule, and we can in this room, I think we can have up to 148 people by law, so everybody can come back. We want everyone to come back. We welcome all families to come back. Our Kids Connect is going to start next Sunday. Our Kids Connect is very simple. That's our children's ministry. And what, we're, what we do is we come in here, we worship with our families, we do opening praise together. And then once praise is over, we're going to invite your children to go down these steps right here, and we're going to have Kids Connect right underneath where we worship. And so that's where it's going to go on. So we're excited. Stephen and Sylvia, who are Kids Connect leaders, they're ready to go, and they're excited. So... Um, please, please come back. We'd love to have you. If you feel hesitant to come back, especially if you have a family, totally understand. No pressure, no nothing. Just, you know, come back whenever you feel like it. We'd love to see you. We'd love to have you. Um, and everyone, obviously, is welcome back, especially if you're a newcomer. Maybe you just kind of, you know, we have been sneaking into our live streams and you want to check out a church. Please come. You know, we'd love to see you. We'd love to have you worship with us. It's pretty exciting to be here together. I've been waiting for a very long time to worship with people. And it's just been feel it feels better every single week. So I anticipate it's just going to get better and better too. So let's come out and let's worship together uh, here at Sydney Full Gospel Church, 204 Waterloo Road. There we go. See, I don't even know the address. I just use Google Maps. So, you know, so that's us. Come out. We'd love to worship. Greenacre. Greenacre, that's the suburb. We'd love to worship with you. Um, if you do come, however, we ask that you bring a mask. And we ask that you wear a mask as we sing praise and throughout our service. Okay. Um, if you notice today when you walk through the doors, there were some, there were some special people at the door. Or maybe you saw someone like ushering you or maybe you saw someone trying to greet you by name. That's our new welcoming ministry that's up and running starting from today. Yes. Yay. And it's really great. You know, our goal in welcoming ministry is we just want, number one, we want to say hello to everybody if we can. We want to give everyone a smile. We want to see, you know, we want to be able to greet everybody by name. We want, we don't want any newcomer to not, like, be welcomed, you know, personally. As well as, you know, we would love to pray for every single person that comes in. Where I've instructed our welcoming ministry, let's pray for every person that comes in, whether we know them well or not. Let's just ask, you know, for God to meet them at our service today. So it's a great opportunity to literally touch and transform lives. If you'd like to be a part of that, please come and talk to me. Um, or you can talk to some, one, one person that you might have seen today. And let's be a part of this amazing ministry that's going to welcome so many into the family of God. So welcoming ministry. Yay. Uh, let's also, uh, also, if you'd like to join a CG, which is called Connect Group, uh, CG, we say CG, um, you know, maybe you want to be a part of our family in a much more intimate way. We, we want to see you do that. We want to see you loved and cared for. We understand that our church is getting bigger and bigger, and sometimes you can kind of just feel like you're just alone. We don't want you to feel like that. 
We'd love for you to be part of a connect group. If you'd like to be a part of one, please come and talk to me or you can talk to anyone that you might have seen welcome people. So please come talk to me. I think it's a lot easier. I can plug you in a lot quicker. Just come up to me and say, hey, I want to be part of a CG. Lastly, if you didn't know, we started our weekly uh, Friday night prayer meetings. That's in the room right across, uh, right over there in the next building over. I forget what it's called again. The Bethlehem room? Sorry, it's the one, it's the room upstairs. Okay. And so please come and pray with us. 7.30 is on Friday, 7.30 on every Friday in the Bethlehem room, which is upstairs in the building next door. Okay. Let's get to our sermon today. And it comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Are you guys enjoying this series that we're going through here, the Sermon on the Mount series? It's very challenging, isn't it? Uh, today, I entitled our sermon, Radical Rights. But as you'll soon learn, it's a misnomer. Anyway, you know, uh, before I actually get to the passage, I always want to share something about today's sermon. Uh, you know, we like, we like all of our sermons to be black and white, don't we? You know, we like our sermons to be clear and easy to apply. This is right, that is wrong, do this and you can live faithfully, don't do that, and you can live faithfully, right? We all like that. Uh, I do too. Um, today's sermon will be somewhat black and white, but um, I think the more you meditate and think about our sermon today, it has every potential to create more questions than provide answers. Even theologians have a lot of difficulty with the teachings in our passage today. They don't, have, they don't have difficulty with the teachings in our passage today. The teachings are very clear, but they all have problems with the application. It really gets tough. And so, you know, I just want to, so all, all I can say is my commitment to you on, on Sundays is simply to try to clearly teach, you know, or to teach as clearly as I can what Jesus is saying in the passage. And then I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit work upon your hearts and your minds um, so that you guys can apply it in your lives, okay? So that's what I'm going to try to do today. Uh, if you have any questions any pract about practical applications or anything about our passage today, please come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. I'll always make myself available to that. I may not have great answers for you, or else I would have already put it in the sermon today. So if it's not there, it's probably because I don't have the answer. But I'd love to dialogue with you, and I think the process on how we can help each other live for God may be just as important as knowing the answer itself. So... Uh, I'd love to do that with you, okay? So with that said, let's get to our passage today, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. The Word of God reads, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll just give us insight, that you'll speak to us as we go over your word together. Lord, we pray that you'll just anoint this time, Father. So regardless if we truly understand or deeply understand what you're talking about or not, that our hearts will just want to desire you and live for you, God, and make you greater through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, many years ago, about 15 years ago, uh, when I first came to Australia, I, uh, I, was eat I went to McDonald's for lunch in West Ride. Great McDonald's. Okay. And, uh, you know, when I walked in, it was very confusing because there were three registers open, but there was just a crowd of like six people. And, you know, there was usually like when three registers open, you expect two people, two people, two people. You expect three lines or three queues, but there were none. It was just a crowd. So, you know, me being the very nice person that I am, I decided just to, you know, just to hang in the back of the big crowd, you know? And so, you know, and I figure when they're ready to take orders up there that people will just naturally go in the order that they entered the restaurant in, right? That's natural. And it works. And the system works as long as everyone knows who came in first. And the system works as long as everyone's honest, but, you know, the, the, three, the three people at the, the registers, they weren't taking many orders. They were just kind of talking to each other, and, and I was really kind of confused. Anyway, we're just waiting. And while we're waiting, I got more nervous because, like, five or six more people came into the restaurant, you know? And I was getting really nervous because I know I'm number seven, but what if I don't get, you know, you know served as number seven? I got really, really nervous. Anyway, the, the people started serving. The left register started to go faster. So the whole crowd slowly started to move towards the left. 
and I start to get nervous. Then the right registers start to go faster. So then the whole crew, crowd start to move to the right. I decided to stay in the middle, which was the stupid decision, the stupidest decision you could make because everyone's moving and you're just standing still. And so anyway, the first six people, they actually got served first. So I was really excited to be number seven. And I was really excited to get my Big Mac, you know, extra value meal ordered. But then when the lady on the left said, hey, who's next? These people like me, me. And then this one guy went up front. And I swear, he looked at me because he knew that I was number seven. And he gave me that ha ha, you know, sucker, you know. And he knew that he was budging me in line. And so he got his order next. I think I turned out to be number 10, you know. And let's just say I did not eat that lunch very peacefully that day. Anyway, a few days later, I'm in my car. I'm getting angry all over again, right? And I'm replaying this scenario that happened a few days, few days before. And I'm like really angry. And so I'm asking myself, Eddie, why are you so angry? You know, why are you so angry over a Big Mac meal? Why are you so angry that you got served later? And I'm replaying this thing in my mind over and over again. And I came to this conclusion. The reason why I'm angry is because I felt I was wronged, right? This was not right. You know, and I was angry. And as silly as that sounds, because it probably I was probably only delayed like three to five minutes. But it can happen, right? That's how petty I am. But it can happen. You know, anytime, anywhere, in any place, in any way, we can get wronged and our hearts can get angry. Am I right? Yes, that's how, that's how we are as human beings. Anyway, so the question for today is, what do you guys do? How do you guys respond when you get personally wronged? Our world is very clear on how we should respond, right? And what's the correct response? We should retaliate. We should fight for what's right, man, right? That's what we should do. We live in a democratic society where this is what we should be doing. You know, and there are a lot of phrases that I've heard over the years that kind of really totally encapsulate that kind of mindset. Maybe you guys have heard some of these too. Would you like to finish this phrase for me? Don't get mad, get even, exactly. How about this one? Dude, you got to fight fire with fire. Shoot first, ask questions later. Exactly. This is the mentality of our world today. And every single person that goes to church, we know that this is probably not the way God wants us to respond when we get personally wronged. I think we just kind of really just know that. So the question then is, how does Christ want us to respond when we get personally wronged within our life? The answer to that and the main point of today's message is this. Radical righteousness calls us to radically surrender our rights. Radical righteousness calls us to radically surrender our rights. Today we're going to talk about the way God wants us to respond when we are personally wrong. And it comes from, the main point comes from verse 38 here, where Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And here what Jesus is doing is he is acknowledging this uh, law. This law of justice that God implemented in the Old Testament. And the thing is, everybody knew this law. Every Jew, every non-Jew, every Roman knew this law because it was such a historically famous law that God had implemented. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you didn't know it, many of the current Western justice systems that exist today are based on this law. Right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Anyway, the reason why God implemented this law in the Old Testament was to stop retaliation and to stop revenge. If you accidentally put out someone's eye, then they'll come back and take revenge and take out your hand and your eye. And then that family will come back and kill you. And that family will come back and kill the whole family. You know what? There's, there'll be no stop to it. So eye for an eye. If, you're, if you poke someone's eye out, then your eye will be poked out. If you murder somebody, then the murderer will die. It's very, very simple. It was, it, was, it was implemented so that it would stop retaliation and revenge. But the whole point of that law, and the reason why God implemented it, is probably not what you would think. The reason why God, the whole point of this law, was so that the people of God would value human life so highly that as a result, they would honor the bodies and the lives and the livelihood of others. Right? If you knew that the punishment for me to take someone's life was my life, then hold up, I'm going to value that life. If I, if I accidentally take out his eye, then 
You want to know something? Or if I have a chance of doing that, I'm not going to do that because I want to honor his body. I want to honor his life. I want to honor the livelihood of that family. And so therefore, I will not do anything to harm someone else. It was something that was to train us to value the lives of others. And this is the reason why this this law was implemented in the Old Testament. But by Jesus' time, you know, regarding this particular law, fearing the law and valuing the intention of the law was way past. You know, people would hear eye for an eye, tooth of the, uh, and tooth for tooth, and instead of thinking of God's intention behind the law, all they thought was this: How much can I retaliate without violating that law? How much can I hurt somebody without actually getting in trouble? For it, And so when people in Jesus' time heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, instead of hearing the biblical mandate to honor human life, they heard it as the biblical justification for revenge. And that's exactly what we think about today when people say eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We think about it as this uh, justification for revenge, which is the exact opposite of God's intention. So when Jesus gets to our passage today, he comes along and he says what? He says, stop. Stop all this evil. You know, and not only does he instruct them to stop all these gross violations of God's law here and his intention behind the law, but he returns them and tries to return their hearts to what God originally intended behind this law in the first place. And not only what is what he taught back then, well, not only was it absolutely shocking to his hearers, but I believe that when we hear it today, it'll probably be a little shocking for us too. Okay? In today's passage, Jesus explains how having his righteousness completely redefines the concept of personal rights. For those who follow Jesus and for those who truly want to please Christ with their lives, here is the ultimate point that Jesus is trying to make in our passage today. We as Christians have no rights. We as Christians have absolutely no rights. Radical righteousness calls us to radically surrender all of our rights. How do you feel? Not that good, right? This is not what I expected on a Sunday afternoon. But that's exactly what it is. And the thing is, it gets a little bit worse. You know, he, Jesus Christ, he gives four examples of how this, this principle plays out. And if I, should I share with you? Let me share with you very briefly the points of those for examples, he says, we have no right to retaliate. We have no right to our own possessions. We have no right to our own time. We have no right to our money. And slowly but surely, you can feel all those people unsubscribing to our YouTube channel right now. Right? <laughs> you know, uh, well, you know, and it doesn't help. It doesn't help that all of these are stated so absolutely. But when you read this passage, Jesus speaks absolutely about these things. And so what that does is it causes us as Christians to go home and to humbly, truly think about what Jesus Christ is saying. We need to deeply and humbly wrestle with these teachings upon our hearts because it's absolutely true these teachings are not only difficult but they are distressing aren't they and the reason why is because when we hear things like you have no rights you have to give up all of your rights you know and we we, we have money possession like something within us wants to push back it's pushing back now my heart is pushing back my mind's pushing back isn't it don't you feel it something's like coming up this is not right you know, Eddie Bank, this is absolutely wrong. You interpreted the passage wrong. There's no way Jesus is saying that because we have rights. Man, we live in a democratic society. You know, this is unconstitutional. You know, I am, this is un-Australian. You know, we have rights. And if Jesus is saying that we have no rights, well, what's wrong with Jesus? You know, this is how we feel. Am I right? And you're right to feel that way. Because you're human and because you're a sinner. And this is how sinners feel. When we get wrong, personally, there's something within us that says, man, if I don't retaliate, something's wrong with that. When I get wronged, if I don't fight for what's right, something's wrong with that. You know, it seems ridiculous not to fight back. But the question you have to ask yourself is, where does that particular sense of justice or fairness come from? Where does this come from? 
Is it from God? Is it from Christ? Is it from Scripture? Is it from the Holy Spirit? Or is it from our sense of what we think is right and fair? I believe our sense of justice and fairness comes from our own righteousness. The righteousness that we were born with, this sin-saturated, self-centered righteousness And the way we know that is is simply by looking at Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. Did Jesus ever operate his life or his ministry according to what we think is right and just? And the answer is no, he never did. He never operated his life or his ministry according to our principles of fairness and justice. We talked about a lot of those examples in the sermon for radical righteousness or radical reconciliation. You guys can go back and and listen to that. But I just want to let's briefly sit here for just a second. And talk about this. Can you imagine if Jesus lived his life and operated his life and ministry according to our standard of fairness and justice? What would that look like? Can I tell you what's fair by our standards? Let me tell you what's fair by our standards. What is fair and just is for everyone to get what they deserve. You violate the law, you should get punished. It's that simple. So, it's fair for God-offending sinners to be sent to hell. If you're a sinner and you spend your life breaking God's laws all day and offending him as a result eternally, then you deserve eternal punishment, right? You deserve to go to hell. People get what they deserve. This is fair. This is just. This is our standard and people, you know, people getting what they deserve. If we demand that Jesus operate by our standards of what is fair and right, then we are all condemned to hell and we deserve it and we should be okay with that. Because that's fair. It's just. We got what we deserve. Can I tell you what's unfair by our standards? What's unfair is that a sinless, holy God had to die to pay the penalty for the sins of his enemies, so that he could save them. Right? That's unfair. If Jesus chose to operate his life and ministry by our standards of fairness and justice, then he never would have died for us, which means that grace could, could not have existed. And if you truly think about it, in an environment of true fairness and justice, grace can never exist. It's not allowed to exist in our system of fairness and justice. But that's our standard, because people get what we deserve, right? And the biggest point is, and no one can get what they don't deserve, which means grace can't exist in our system of fairness and justice. So thank God that Jesus never operated by our standards of what's right or just. You know, and thank God that Jesus chooses to operate his whole life and ministry, even now, according to a completely different standard. And what's his standard? It's a standard that continually offers grace. It is a standard that reveals the heart and character of God to people. And that is his standard. You know, this new standard, if I can sum it up, I'm going to sum it up with with this phrase. I think the new standard is the cross, the cross of Christ, right? And what that means is that Jesus, what was most important to Jesus was not himself. What was most important to Jesus was not himself or his rights. What was most important to Jesus was the gospel. Okay? And Jesus was always, every single day, Jesus died to himself. Philippians 2 said he emptied himself so that the gospel could always be front and center within his life, so that the mission of grace to the world could be encountered through him, and so that the character of God could be revealed through his ministry. Do you guys get that? He never thought about himself. It was never about him or his rights. It was always about what he was called to. It was always about what God wanted in him. And so if he had to die to himself, if he had to sacrifice himself, he did. And he did. Every single day of his life. That is the standard of righteousness that Jesus decided to live by. And if we call ourselves followers of Christ, then that is the standard of righteousness that he expects us to also live by. Right? He expects us to, and which means if we're going to do that, it takes a complete overhaul, not only of our understanding of rights and justice, but an overhaul of how we practice rights and justice 
within our lives. Jesus calls us to operate our lives by the way of the cross. And what does that mean practically? The way of the cross is what? The way of the cross always seeks to redeem wrongs. The way of the cross always seeks to redeem the wrongdoer and win them to Christ, even if that means the cost of myself. It's huge. The cross is never about us. The cross is never about our rights. But it is always about what will serve the gospel best and what will bring, what will bring the offenders to Christ most powerfully. It's tough, right? But in order to accomplish that in the life of the believer, it calls for what? Crucified living, a life of self-denial, a life of self-sacrifice, in order for the gospel of grace to be encountered through us. In other words, a radical surrendering of all of our rights for the sake of the gospel. You guys get that? This is Christ's sense of righteousness. This is Christ's righteousness. And it's something that the disciples fully understood as well. It's not like they were uh, you know, out of the blue. They totally understood this. They totally adopted it. Let's, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 12, he writes this, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we all have it even the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, here we go. We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. When he says we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel, what he's saying is we'll give up everything so that the gospel never gets hindered in our lives. That's what he's saying here. That whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 9, you read this, you go home and read this. 1 Corinthians 9 is a chapter that's dedicated for, to Paul writing every right that the apostles chose not to exercise. Even though we have all these rights given to us by God, we're not even going to exercise that so that the gospel message can be central and seen through our lives. That's what 1 Corinthians 9 is all about. And if you read this, it reads so honorably, but God doesn't care about honor in that sense. What God wants is worship. And we worship God through our lives when we choose to operate by his righteousness and not ours, even though it goes against every fabric of our being and our sense of what is right and wrong in our hearts. It's key. That's why anytime we try to do this, the first thing that hits us, and the reason why we push pushes back so hard, pushes back, is because our minds and our hearts are so corrupt with our own righteousness. Our minds and hearts are so corrupt with our own sense of what we think is right and wrong. Even if it's and that's like it's far greater than oh, screw what God thinks about that. This is what I know and I feel. That's that just proves to us how corrupt our hearts really are when we refuse to even adopt Christ's righteousness as right. That's why we need Jesus to live this out. We can't do it by our own strength. We can't do it by ourselves. We need Jesus to live out his righteousness. You know, We need Christ to constantly help us let go of our understanding of what is right and wrong and choose to operate according to his gospel-centric, grace-driven righteousness. And when we do, people will see and know and encounter the gospel of grace through us. This is the point of today's message. Do you guys see that? Tough, isn't it? Radical righteousness calls us to radically surrender our rights. So let's see what that means a little bit more specifically through the examples that Christ gives us. In each one of these examples, somebody is getting wronged big time. Somebody's getting wronged in a major way. And in each situation, Jesus clearly states how we are to give up our rights. So let's briefly go through each one and then I'll have a concluding thought. No practical suggestions, just a concluding thought today. Number one, we have no right to retaliation. We give up our right to retaliate. Verse 39, it says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, verse 39 is a situation where someone is being grossly insulted. To slap someone on the right cheek, people were righties back then, means that you would just slap them with the back of your hand. It's, it's, it's not only literal, but it's also a metaphor for the greatest insult you can bestow upon another. So when someone is greatly insulted, what does Jesus say here? He says, do not retaliate. Isn't that what he says? He says, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not retaliate. As a matter of fact, just don't retaliate. Not only not retaliate, open yourself up now to get insulted and abused even more. And that's exactly the teaching behind this passage. I mean, that's crazy talk, Jesus. Right? Why would I do that? You're saying if someone makes fun of me or my kids or my family or my mama, 
You know, I'm supposed to sit there and take it and then open myself up to even more, invite even more. And Jesus says, what? Yes, you are. Why? Why can we do that as believers? And why should we do that as believers? There's two reasons. Number one, vengeance is God's work, not ours. Right? There's so many, there's so many verses of scriptures that say this. I'm just going to share two with you today. Number one comes from Deuteronomy 32, 35. It says, the Lord says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. Proverbs 20, 22 says, do not say I will pay you back for wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. The reason why we do not have to retaliate is because God will always bring about justice in his time. He is a father who cares about his children, and trust me, he'll take care of us in his time. So not retaliating when we get personally wronged is a true exercise of our faith, not only in the character of God, but in the promises of God. You know, that's why we don't have to retaliate. By not retaliating, we are actually, here we go, here's the big principle. By not retaliating, we are actually trusting God to work in the heart of the offender. Because that's what he said he would do. But when we retaliate, what we're telling God is, hey, I, if I take matters into my own hands, I can mete out justice much better than you can. Don't trust you. Don't trust you're going to do it in a good way. I'm going to do it by my own standard of right and wrong and my own righteousness. And what we do is we end up basically violating or you know sinning because we don't trust in God. Number two, the second reason why we can do this is because God wants us to love our enemies and bless our enemies. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. 1 Peter 3, 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult, but repay insults and evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. You know, I could be wrong, but it's pretty impossible to bless somebody when you're beating them up. You know, it's pretty impossible to share Jesus when you're spewing profanities at people. It just doesn't work like that. But if you ever read 1 Peter 3, you should read 1 Peter 3. If you ever read 1 Peter 3, this whole chapter is dedicated to this. It's, all, it's dedicated to the willingness to suffer unjustly for Christ so that the offending party can see and experience the gospel of Jesus through us. That's 1 Peter 3. And isn't that the whole point of what Jesus is talking about here? We give up our rights to retaliate so that people can experience the gospel of Christ through us. It's about the gospel. And if it takes the cross for people to see the gospel through us, then that's what it takes. That's God's sense of righteousness. Number two, we have no rights to our possessions. Verse 40, it says, If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. You know, in verse 40, the situation is this. A rich person is suing a very poor person for everything that they have. Literally the shirt off his back. That's where that phrase comes from, right? This verse. And it's pretty evil for rich people to be suing dirt poor people, but that's what's happening in this passage. But there was one piece of, there was one possession that the Jewish law actually protected for every Jewish citizen, and that was a person's coat. No matter how poor you were, no matter how much you lost in a lawsuit, and no one was allowed to take your coat, because if you were homeless, you needed something to keep you warm at night, and that was the principle. Okay? But what does Jesus say in this passage? He says, if you get sued and the guy takes you for everything that you have, even though the law states that you can keep your coat, give it to him as well. Right? Isn't that crazy? Meaning, what does that mean? It means that those things that are ours by law, we willingly give up for the sake of the gospel. All Everything that we own, everything that we have, everything that we call our possessions, we are willing to give up fully for the sake of the gospel. You know, this type of situation where you're being sued for everything that you have probably doesn't, you know, it probably won't occur very frequently in your life. But the principle remains the same, doesn't it? When someone is trying to wrong you by taking advantage of your things, by taking your things away from you, instead of being tight-fisted and angry, be generous, right? Give away even the things that are rightly yours for the sake of the gospel. It might touch and change someone's life as a result. Isn't that crazy? But it's true. Did anyone ever see that musical Les Mis or read the book? Get cultured, people. Anyway, 
<laughs> I'm so sorry. A pastor should never offend this congregation. Anyway, uh, you know, if you never read this book, the book is intimidating. It's like this thick, you know, Victor Hugo. That's how you go, 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 go to the musical. Anyway, uh, in the story, there's a poor guy named Jean Valjean, and he steals these objects of silver from a priest and a church, gets caught by the police, dragged back to the church in front of this, thrown in front of this, in front of this priest, and, and the police want the priest to press charges and accuse this person for robbery. And the priest full knows he's been robbed, you know, and he fully sees this desperate man. And so instead of filing charges, however, he goes to his cabinet and he pulls out more objects of silver and he says, hey, you forgot to take these as well. You know, and this priest, instead of operating according to our own system of right and just, decides to operate by Christ's system of justice and decides to give even more of what was rightfully his for the sake of the gospel. And if you know the story, that one act of grace, that one act of generosity completely changed this man's life so that he might live for God. And so that this musical become the greatest musical ever. Am I right? Amen? You guys go see it. Anyway, <laughs> forgive me. Let's get back to the main point. You know, and that's the whole point. Through our generosity, right? Through the willingness to give up our things, even to people, especially to people who don't deserve it, God could use that to show his character and to, for people to experience grace through us. We, we, when we are wronged by others in this way, our opponents might think that they are taking advantage of us. However, in God's reality, what they're really doing is creating opportunities for themselves to encounter the gospel of grace through us. We, as well, he, they are also gifting us with the opportunity to model God's grace and his faithful character through our generosity to them. What they intend for evil God uses for good. And it's only possible as long as we fully understand within our hearts that everything that we have and all that we possess are not ours, but they are God's. And God gave us possessions, you know, in order, things like, you know, clothes, food, cars, houses, toys, all things, everything that we have and everything that we possess, God gave us those things so that we can preach the gospel with it and so that we can use it as tools of grace so that other people can know the character and encounter the character of God as we are generous to them. But we can't do that when we're tight-fisted with our things. We can only do that when we're open-handed and generous to those who don't deserve it. Our possessions are tools of the gospel, tools that reveal the character of Christ, especially when they are given away undeservedly. But in order to do that, we need to give up our rights of ownership. We need to give up our right to own them and to possess them for the sake of the gospel. Number three, we have no rights to our time. Verse 41 says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And here, you know, in verse 41, it's speaking of something that we'll probably never experience because we've never been occupied by an empire. But back then, the Roman soldiers at any single time, at any time of day, for whatever reason, they could force any Jew to do work for them, you know. And they would, a lot of times it would be carrying burdens long distances. And so that's where this you know, comes into play. And obviously, any Jew, just like we would, any Jew hated it when their time and their day was demanded of them so that and they were forced to do somebody else's work. They lost a whole day as a result. And so what does Jesus command here? He says, don't just do what's expected, but go way above and beyond what's expected. And what he's talking about here is not just the actual physical work itself, but he's talking about our heart attitude. You know, when you might hate it, and of course, a natural person will hate it because our rights are violated, our day is violated, everything that we own, everything about that day is violated. To do someone else's work, it's totally unfair, unjust, you know, terrible. But he says, be joyful to do that work. And not only that, but go above and beyond whatever your oppressor is asking you to do. It's crazy talk. 
right? It's crazy. But why would we do that? We do that for the sake of the gospel. How does that show the gospel? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, it says this. God says, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever they good they do, whatever they, whether they're slave or free. This particular section of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is addressing slaves, okay? And Paul, it's a tough message, Paul is telling these slaves to embrace your horrific position as a slave, right? Embrace it. And as a slave, serve your earthly masters, as if you are serving God. Why? Because God calls all of us, no matter what economic strata we might be in society, God calls all of us to bless others and to show them how valuable they are in God's eyes through our service to them. Whether we're in forced labor or whether it's in voluntary labor, we labor so that people can know their value in God's eyes as we serve them, just like the Old Testament law's intention was. And when we serve them with joy, and when we go above and beyond their demands, we value them and show them how generous and gracious God really is towards them. The bonus here says that God honors and rewards our hearts as well. Now, we might think that this is something that we don't really encounter in our day, but I think this is something that we probably most most commonly encounter in all of our days. You know, like when I think these things happen to us very, very frequently, as a matter of fact, you know, how many times has your boss thrown work at you, extra work at you at four o'clock? <laughs> and you're just like, ah, oh. you know, how many times have you been doing something and all of a sudden a telemarketer who's just doing their job calls and you're just like, oh, man, you get emotional for no reason. You know, it's like when your spouse Asks you to help her in the kitchen in the middle of the grand final. You know, oh, you know, unjust, you know. But these, these situations happen all the time. But the cross of Christ teaches us to truly value that person by serving them. Whether it's just or unjust, right or wrong. You know, this is what we are to do. We are called to be a blessing and to show them how valued they truly are in Christ. We willingly give up the rights to our time. This is my time. Honey, I told you, 7 to 10, don't bother me. You know, this is, we give up our rights to our time so that we can reveal the grace of God by serving others wholeheartedly. Lastly, we have no rights to our money. Verse 42, give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Everybody hates this verse. If you read this, you're going to hate this verse. Every Christian hates this verse. But let me put your hearts at ease. God is not literally commanding us to give to everybody who asks. If this was so, I would ask all of you for $1,000 and you have to give it to me or you're sinning. You know, how good would that be? But that's not what he's asking here. Once again, to go back to the law, what he wants is he wants us to value every single life. And the truth is, there are people in our society who have genuine needs. There are poor people who have genuine needs. There are people who are in trouble that have genuine needs in our society. And there are people who will come up to us and very uncomfortably ask us for money. They will very uncomfortably ask us for a loan. Has that ever happened to you? It happens. You're a pastor, right? Hey, I'm really, I really need something. It's, you know, that happens. You know, and those who have money should never be so tight-fisted with it that we are not willing to give generously as needed, that we are not willing to lend generously as needed, right? Isn't that terrible? Dude, that money's mine. He just wants a free handout. It's unfair. It's wrong. They should get a job. You know, all these things. Our hearts are to value each person and therefore give and lend without expecting anything back. Why? Because that's God's love for us. First John 3. You guys are studying this in CG. First John. 1 John 3, 17-18 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. God gave us money and God gave us things to help our fellow brothers in need. Right? If we don't have compassion upon those people who are in need in our society and in our circles, then what does the scripture say? It says that if we were to tell people that we actually follow God, we're lying. That's what it says. 
To say that we love God is a lie. Even further, let's look at Luke chapter 6. And we're just going to look at 35 and 36. What does God say here? What does Christ say here? He says, but love your enemies. Do good to them. That's radical. That's countercultural, right? Be And lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Here we go. Because he, God, is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. So be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. None of these verses are fair or right or just by any of our standards. But it is completely Christ-like in every single way. You know, be merciful as God is merciful, it says. God wants us to use our money in a Christ-like way. And in order to do that, we need to realize that our money is not our money. It has all been given to us by God. It is God's. And he entrusts it to us so that we can use it as a tool to bless others. And if we understand what these verses are saying radically in Luke chapter 6, we need to use our money as a tool to be kind and merciful to whom? The ungrateful and the wicked. Why would you give your money to the ungrateful and the wicked? To show them the gospel. You know, to show them how much they're valued in Christ. To show them how much God loves them. To show them how much, you know, they deserve forgiveness. And they and God wants to forgive them and show them how valued they are in Christ. So when we encounter those that make us uncomfortable when they beg and ask for a loan because of the cross, not only can we be generous, but we can also get excited. We can get excited because we know that when we give money to someone who probably doesn't deserve it and is going to be ungrateful and absolutely wicked, we can be excited because we can show off how merciful God really is. All this stuff goes counterculture to everything, doesn't it? It goes against everything our heart and our mind is telling us. But this is what Jesus says. So, we have no right to retaliation. We have no right to our things. We have no right to our time. We have no right to our money. All these are tools that God has given us to bless others, to show them how valued they are in God's sight, and for them to see, know, and encounter the gospel of grace through us. Radical righteousness calls us to radically surrender our rights. You guys get this? Is it cool? Do you love it? Yay! Anyway, let's let's end with a final thought. Romans 12, 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, ever since Adam and Eve, mankind has been working out the system of good and evil, haven't we? Right? That's what we've been doing, because we violated the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what we ended up with is this self-serving system of right and wrong, justice and injustice, where we simply strive to do what we think is fair. But Jesus says that we are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. Therefore, instead of eye for an eye, we are now to respond redemptively to personal wrongs, where we seek the highest value of others so that they can see and encounter the grace of Jesus Christ through us. And what does that take? It's going to take our self-denial. It takes our self sacrifice, just like the cross states, in order for that to happen. That's exactly what Christ did. And because he operated by his standard of righteousness, what happened? We were redeemed and saved. Christ now says we have the opportunity to do exactly the same. When we live out his righteousness with the gospel central and not us or our rights, people can be redeemed and saved through us as well. Let's pray. You know, the pushback that we feel within our hearts and our minds, it's real. And if you think about all these commands, and if you think about what Jesus is asking us to do, it's actually impossible. It really is. Our heart tells us already, our mind tells us already it's impossible. And it's impossible because we're sinners through and through. We push back because we're sinners through and through. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need his forgiveness. That's why we need his righteousness. We need Christ to help us. We need Christ so that we can actually live this out for his glory. Because we can't do it on our own, that's for sure. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never realized that you are a sinner in need of Jesus, 
Will you come and repent today? Repent of your sins. Surrender your life to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to live for you. I know I was created to live for you. Help me live for you with all that I have and to turn away from my sinfulness forever. Make that surrender today. Come and surrender your life to Jesus. Repent of your sins and ask him to help you live for him. Maybe today, for some of us who are believers, Christ has convicted you of some of your sinful attitudes, maybe some of your sinful practices. Maybe your trust has always been in yourself. Let's also come and repent for our worldly standards of righteousness. And from now on, let's allow Christ's righteousness to not only guide us, but to shine through us. Let's pray. pushing back. Everything within a thing, oh, this is impossible. It's too hard. And it is. But Lord, help us to live out, or at least try to live out your righteousness. Because it's good for us to realize how much we need you. It's good for us to realize how sinful we still truly are. And how much we are desperate for you. And how much we need you to live faithfully for you, God. Because that's what we want to do. We know how much you love us. We know exactly what it took for us to be forgiven and for us to be saved. We want to model that. We want to live that out, God, but we can't because it's just too hard. Sinners who have been living this long in sin, we just can't just flip it. We just can't flip the switch. We need you and your power and your spirit and your presence to help us do that, Father. We need you. Won't you help us? live for you. We want to make you great. We want to be transparent so the gospel can be seen through us. We want to be able to be generous with our things, our money, our time, our right, all those things. We want to, but it's so hard. So Father, help us so that people can come to know Christ through our lives, so that we could truly be salt that's salty, light that's bright, and so, Father, so that you could use our lives to make true eternal impact. Help us to live and want to live and help us to surrender to the way of the cross. Self-denial, self-sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. So that you might be known, you might be seen and experienced through us. Help us do that for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.